the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For you is a picture of Baba Henry, as he's known. I've known him for over 20 years. The first time I met him was in northern Malawi in Central Africa, where at that time he was the youth director for the whole diocese. It was a quite formidable task to be a youth director in that area, given that the vast population of the country of Malawi is under the age of 40. So he had his work cut out for him. He pioneered uh, new formation programs, uh, new fellowship outlets, and helped mentor countless souls in the faith. I haven't seen him in over 20 years. It was good to lay eyes on him two weeks ago uh, for the first time. Um, And interestingly, as he's aged, he's never slowed down. In his 70s, mind you, um, he's now in his 80s, but when he was in his 70s, He noticed that in his local village or local neighborhood, as we might deem it, uh, there was no church. And so he took it upon himself to help uh, plant a church in that area, Um, became one of the ones who helped fund that. Um, It was a great joy to stand in this newly constructed church and hear the story about how they began with 50. Now there's over 200. The vast majority of those 200 are actually under the age of 30. And his work of mentoring continues. He's all but blind. He cannot walk very well. In fact, that picture was taken during worship. As an aside, um, if 90 minutes for worship in the West seems like a lot, the clock, if you can read it, is correct. It was 1.30 when I was pulled out from worship, which began at 9 that morning, um, to go and spend some time with him because they went and brought him from his home because he couldn't travel that day. He's a wonderful example in many ways of the call to the Christian life. Never ordained, but yet the countless colleagues that I engaged with in our time there pointed to him as someone who helped mentor him in the faith when they were youth and now who are leaders and ministers of the gospel in their region because of the investments of someone like Henry. I pulled forward his story this morning um, in many ways uh, to spur you on and to challenge you, because the words that we hear of Jesus in John chapter 14 remind us that that belief in Jesus is not an intellectual exercise, but it's becoming like Jesus. Belief is becoming. That that theme is one I'd like for us to spend some time swimming around in, if we could, um, in these 14 verses of John's gospel. Um, this, This theme of Believing is becoming, becoming like Jesus more specifically, although if we believe in anything, it makes us and forms us uh, in in many ways that we may realize whether it happens or not. Um, And so as we look at this, I think there's some lessons along the way uh, for us to consider, too, just to pause and reflect upon more practically about what does belief um, in becoming like Jesus truly look like. So open with me um, in your Bible, if you have it, to John 14, or follow along there on the screens as we uh, work through this together this morning. John um, 14, and really this section of John's gospel for context, is is what later becomes known as uh, what you may recall as Jesus' farewell discourse. 
Um, it's, it's focused around Jesus' teaching um, in anticipation of his departure. Um, this is before his death, before his resurrection, telling about and teaching the disciple and many of his kind of parting uh, instructions before he would ascend back to the right hand of God the Father, giving them things um, to chew on, promises that the Holy Spirit would call back to mind, um, things that would instruct and inform their lives um, for the rest of their days and for generations to come. And so it's fitting that the, the opening words are words of comfort from Jesus in light of all that we'll unpack um, in the chapters that follow. Um, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he goes on to explain why he's leaving in verse 3, to prepare a place for you that there I may have a place for you and I will return uh, to bring you to myself. But before we get into all the back and forth, it's interesting to note, and anytime Jesus repeats himself more than once, it, it's perhaps worth taking inventory of what is going on there. The first of six times Jesus says, believe, in the latter half of verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then Jesus goes on to explain what this belief entails, that I'm departing for this purpose, I'll return for this purpose. You know the way where I am going. This belief is met very contextually by Thomas in verse 5, who then says, Lord, we don't know the way where you're going. Um, how can we believe? How can we put this in action? And Jesus then, in verse 6, if we were to advance, gives us that great Christological statement that we know that belief in him is believing that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the access to God, the pathway to know where he's going. And from now on, you do know him because you've seen him. And then Philip chimes in um, in verse 8 on the heels of this profound statement to say, Lord, if, if you just reveal yourself, it would be enough. Their belief wants to be met with this theophany of, of sorts, just like Moses and, and the prophets of old. If we could just see your glory, Jesus, then, then that belief will be sufficient that you're asking for from us. We'll, we'll know that. It'll, it'll resonate within us. And Jesus, in his gentle rebuke of, Pete, of uh, Philip in this point, I always want to say Peter, but he's not in this passage, at least um, named as such, says, have you been with me so long, Jesus, in reply? And you say, show us the Father. There's another belief one more time. If you believe in me, you'll believe you've seen the Father, for the Father is in me and I in him. Uh, the words I speak are not of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. And then if you don't believe that, believing that the Father is in me and I in the Father, then believe on the account of the works themselves. And then finally, in verse 12, we get one more Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. But before we move to that section, it's worth noting that the, the understanding of belief is, is really a hinge point for this whole passage, is it not? And I think for us, when we think of belief, we think about intellectual assent, affirming, um, uh, an affirmation of sorts in, in some sort of proclamation to what we believe or hold to be truth. And while that may be a portion of it, it should be a very small portion of it, because truly what Jesus is asking of them is different. Um, if it was just an assent to what Jesus taught and commanded, they wouldn't be 
questioning and wrestling down this belief. They'd seen the works that Jesus had done. It's not as though they wonder if their eyes uh, deceived them. They've heard the things that Jesus taught and commanded, and they've witnessed the authority with which he speaks. So it's not that. It's something different. I think for us to unlock belief in a different way, to kind of get out of our head and more into our hands and our heart, it's helpful to note, perhaps, that believing is becoming is truly about trust. Belief is about trust in Jesus. It's not just assenting to the things that Jesus taught and commanded. It's about trusting him. In fact, if we looked at those statements of belief and added in there or inserted the word trust, it would have a bit of a different context. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Trust that when Jesus says, I am the way, to replying, where do we know how to get where you're going, Jesus? How do we follow you? Do they trust that Jesus has everything sufficient to give them that way. There's nothing outside of who he is or what he's taught and commanded that's needful for them to access God. Do they believe, do they trust that he's the truth, that the fullness of deity, the fullness of God dwells in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, and that is enough? Do they trust that in him is the fullness of of life. And then Jesus, in reply to Philip, in this desire, well, we trust you, Jesus, but if we could just see a little bit more, you know, that would really kind of make this concrete for us, reminds them in this section that follows that in seeing Jesus, they've seen all they need to see. Trust the words he's spoken. Trust the deeds, the miracles, the moments that they have witnessed. Trust those things. And it's not just for them. I love that the gospel writers always capture themselves very vulnerably for our benefit, because we all wrestle with that trust in Jesus, do we not? That's where rubber meets the road. It's not truly just about, do we assent to the things that Jesus said? Do we hold these as faith statements that we uh, conform um, some sort of uh, theological treaties around, but does it really form and inform our lives? to trust what Jesus has taught and commanded, and thus forming our steps along the way. What does that look like? Wrestling it down, do we, in those ways, trust in the back and forth that is laid forth here? Trusting that Jesus will return, even if we do not ever see that day this side of the veil. So that reason, this passage is always wonderfully put in the burial liturgy in our tradition to remind us that there is our trust. Do we trust Jesus in the midst of all of the things that he has taught and commanded to put them into practice? Will we believe him in that way? Will that inform our very lives? Will we trust him in the practical ways in which we lead our lives? If Jesus teaches things such as um, that the, the, the earth is taken care of by the Lord, the cattle on a thousand hills, and all that is in it is his own. Uh, he arrays the uh, lilies with more splendor than Solomon and all of his glory. If we can trust him with that, can we trust him with all the temporal aspects of our lives in practice? Trust meeting belief in practical ways.
when we trust him to put into practice these very countercultural things that Jesus teaches in the midst of a culture that, that draws us in this way and that. Trusting him that when we're wronged, we can leave vengeance to him and forgive. Trusting that when he says pray and love your enemies, it's never easy to do that, but whoever we hold or whatever body of people or whatever those people are that we place in our minds, that to love them, to pray for them, to pray for their conversion of hearts is something that we are called to do. That's where rubber meets the road. Will we wrestle down in the reality of every circumstance what it means to trust Jesus? The issue down for the ages begins there because what comes next is rooted in that trust of Jesus in verse 12 and following. If we turn there, Jesus pivots at this point after this whole back and forth on belief and, and this asking for greater trust where he says, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will you do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Sadly, these verses tend to get pulled away from where they're housed in Jesus' teaching, and it does not mean um, that whatever we tag in prayer within Jesus' name will be given us, but rather it's rooted in this trust of Jesus in a way where we are then reformed in the things that we ask for and the ways that we trust and the ways that we put our lives in practice so that we begin to ask for things, as verse 13 tells us, that glorify our Father in heaven by asking things through Jesus Christ, his Son. It's a heart work on the inside out that we begin to ask for the very things that God himself purposes, that for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. What it brings about in us, or the call for such trust, is a call for us to be daily transformed into the very likeness of Jesus, being transformed to ask for the things that move God's heart, that bring him glory. And how does that look, and what does that look like? We, we begin to ask for these things because our lives are likewise transformed as we trust in Jesus. We begin to ask for a heart like God's heart to love and forgive and to reach out to a world around us, knowing that if we can ask such things when Jesus knows the depths of our heart with all of its warts and wretchedness and he still loves us, then he can transform us to love like he does. Knowing that when we ask for things in his name, just like the things that move his heart for the world um, and the brokenness of the world that breaks his heart, we ask for that and then we put our hands and our hearts and our backs into that recognizing that feeding the sick and clothing the naked and tending to those in prison are not just corporal acts of mercy, but are means by which the gospel is seen and witnessed, that Jesus comes in to their midst. 
what was so radical and revolutionary down through the ages. I had to take a few notes as I was reading some things this week. Early Christian historians always want to understand, how did we go from Acts with these departing words put into practice with the merry band of twelve, a few sermons that gathered folks in, and then they, they spread to the entire known world. What, what happens there? And, and many scholars will note this. Um, one put it quite plainly, said that sources rarely indicate that the early Christians grew in number because they won arguments. Instead, they grew because of their habitual behavior, rooted in patience, which was distinctive and intriguing to the pagans around them. St. Cyprian in the third century uh, gave this haunting line in, in, in a message that he preached. He said, we do not speak great things, but we live them, talking about the body of Christ in any individual place. A little earlier on, Justin Martyr in the second century um, noted he's one who rubbed elbows with the apostles themselves said, people are intrigued. They wonder at the God whom Christians say motivates their behavior. And so even then, in the second century, he's commending the Christians, it's important that they not quarrel like other people, but it's essential that they live their good works visibly in the sight of others. That is what transformed the known world. The the Christians, as uh, the King James says of 1 Peter, were a peculiar people. They didn't make sense to the world around them. They lived in weird and and odd ways. When they saw um, boys and girls who had no parents and had no substance, they took them in as they were their own children. They, They tended to those who were sick. They went to the prisons taking care of those who were rightly there, um, even though they themselves had no reason for doing so. They took care of their neighbors in ways that the empires and governments around them were ashamed because they took better care of them than even they could. They did these incredible things because they were animated by this trust of God that transformed their hearts and continued to transform the world and the culture around them. I'd contend that's what we need today, more than ever, perhaps, in the West. And interestingly, um, the marks of why this took place were fourfold. And interestingly, I would contend these are things that we've lost as the church in generations past. How did that transformation come? It came, scholars note, through godly mentors like Henry, like any number of you who sit in the pews or chairs here on any given Sunday, right? Um, Not just absorbing, but then taking others under your wing to show them what you've learned and grown to understand of whatever age they may be. It came through the formation of habits, through the resuscitation of Scripture daily. They memorized it, they spoke it, and in the face of martyrdom, those were the words that were on their hearts because they were pressed on their minds. They did not neglect that. They fasted, and they did ascetic practices that reminded them that this world was not their home, that the culture they lived in was a place in which they ministered and reached out, but that was not the place where they should let their hope reside. And so they trained their bodies and their minds through habits that reformed their hearts through the ways that they lived. And lastly, they worshiped weekly. In fact, they would note that when anyone was missing, 
they would go and search them out. They wouldn't let them miss more than one week because they knew how essential it was for the body of Christ to be gathered in worship. It required intentionality. It required vulnerability. And it required a genuineness that could not be duplicated. And that captured the world around them. I will say from the church's standpoint, we've measured the wrong metrics for far too long. We've looked more at um, buildings and numbers and attendance, and we've not looked at the stories. The stories are where the heart of the gospel is. Stories like Henry, stories like yours, and big and small. That doesn't have to be the, the hall of heroes. It can be our parents who get your kids here every week in spite of all the other things that draw for your attention on a Sunday morning. It can be holding the line in, 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 in your home and catechizing your kids in the faith and conforming them to a life of what it means to be a Christian. We need to celebrate that. We need to celebrate those who, who are vulnerable enough to attend Bible studies and share about what uh, it is that they're wrestling with or the areas God is, is pricking their conscience in what they read and asking for prayer from the body of believers. We need to celebrate those things. We need to find the habits that reform us so that our trust is met in the ways that we lead our lives and point to the transformation that we believe and have been given through the waters of baptism and faith in Jesus. We've seemed to miss in generations past, the goal here is not just right believing in passages like this so that we reach the moment when Jesus returns and calls us to his own. But the goal of the Christian life is that when Jesus returns, by God's grace, perhaps he sees a bit more of himself in us. And there are others around us that we've brought into his gracious presence through word and deed, so that they might come to know indeed what it means when Jesus says, there's no other way. There's no other way except through me. So, church, our prayer and our work is that, to keep after the work, to continue to share the stories, continue to press on in those things that reform our habits and our behavior, so that God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, his Son. May that be so, in Jesus' name, amen.